0: Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. It's lovely to welcome back to the show this time Paula Surridge, one of Britain's experts on how people's values influence their political and voting choices. She's also one of the authors of a new book all about the 2019 general election. Welcome, Paula. Good morning. Now, your new book with Tim Bale, Rob Ford and Will Jennings. Is called The British General Election of 2019. Get the plug in, nice and early. <laughs> and it's the latest in the sort of authoritative Nuffield series that David Butler used to author or co-author. So it must have been, I guess, quite exciting and maybe even a little awe-inspiring to join the series with this volume.
1: It was, yeah. And my first reaction when um, Rob asked me to join the team was incredibly flattered and excited. But then... A little bit later on it dawned on me that this was going to take me quite a long way out of my comfort zone in terms of what I'd done in the past research-wise and really take me into territory around party strategy that wasn't my usual topic. I'm much more comfortable I suppose talking about the electorate and what they think and do rather than what those at the top of parties think and do. So definitely it was it was a incredible thing to be part of and we had the launch recently with David Butler and and Dennis Kavanagh there and to to feel part of that history and to know that in 30 years time people might pick the book up to find out what happened in 2019 Mm. is is really quite really quite something yeah Um, I I I don't want to
0: to I did recently reach for the February 1974 volume (laughs) Uh, on my shelves to have a read of so yes it's it must be a little bit scary but also I think I'm right in saying aren't I that you're the first woman to be named as an author on the cover since the very first volume back in 1945. I that's might say It's true. been a long time coming.
1: It has it has been a long time coming though they've been small teams of, yeah. of academics working on them and um, so it's not and in an area that's not known for having too many female researchers. It's not, that, not so surprising, I suppose. But yeah, that was also something that felt very, very,
0: very flattering. Let's jump into the book then. Let's go for the simple question. Why did Boris Johnson win in 2019? What's the key takeaway from all of the work that went into the book?
1: So the, the key takeaway are these three factors that are really closely intertwined. So Boris Johnson himself, Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. And occasionally people will ask me to say, can you tell us which one of those things was the most important? And the answer is no, because they're so intertwined with each other that you can't simply separate out one of them. Boris Johnson was able to sell the get Brexit done message because people saw him as an iconic leave campaigner. So he was able to sell that message in a way that many others in his party would not have been able to do. Brexit itself had sort of come to a head after much more so than it did in in 2017 after two years of, of parliamentary wrangling and Jeremy Corbyn's personal ratings had had slipped away to such a to such a degree that it was a lesser opposition that that Boris Johnson faced in 2019 than Theresa May had faced in 2017.
0: Now, what's interesting about that trio is they feel very, potentially very transitory issues. Because I think the immediate sense after the 2019 election, actually across the political spectrum, not merely amongst conservatives, was that the conservatives had won a big majority. They were set for four or five years in power, but also they were remaking British politics in a way that hugely benefited them. And they were That Labour was now caught on the horns of uh, this rather incompatible coalition, and how on earth could it hold it apart? You know, and it looked like we might be in for a period of even more extended Conservative rule. But those three factors—I mean, Brexit will be with us for decades to come. But the particular politics of Brexit, in a way, we have moved on from about the politics of 2019. Jeremy Corbyn—he is obviously still hanging around, causing problems for the Labour Party, but he's no longer their leader. He's back to being a peripheral figure. And, you know, Boris Johnson's personality, well, we're we're seeing, you know, at the moment, you know, we're recording it in the week of all of the fuss about was there a cheese and wine party, with social distancing or not, in Downing Street and so on. It's just the sort of issue that is showing up the weaknesses of, you know, the flip side of Boris Johnson's personality. So, in a way, looking at those three, it should perhaps make non-conservatives optimistic that it may be that 2019 turns out to be a little bit of an aberration as opposed to the start of another long period of Tory rule
1: yes although I think
0: oh that's such a lovely wisely cautious academic answer isn't it yes (laughs) although
1: it is but there's there's a really important point that I want to get across about it so although they all seem like kind of short-term issues each of them have their roots in long-term political Mm. trends so i think all three of those brexit boris johnson being able to to become leader of the conservative party and jeremy corbyn becoming leader of the labor party all reflect these longer term political trends so although each of them might (laughs) be done (laughs) to put it one way um the things that drove us mm. to the point where those three things could happen at the same time, those trends are still there. So the trends that saw as deliver Brexit, the trends that led to Jeremy Corbyn being le- leader of the Labour Party and the trends that, that led to Boris Johnson as prime minister all have their roots in those changes that have been happening in political structures in the electorate. And um, so they're all symptoms as well as causes of what's been happening. And so Mm. I think one of the things that caused such a stir after the Hartlepool by-election, I I, I did tell Twitter, I wouldn't be able to avoid talking about by-elections. But one of the things that caused such a stir was that people had assumed that the 2019 result for Labour turned on either Brexit or Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. And so they expected quite a quick bounce back. And that indicated straight away that that wasn't going to happen, that it didn't matter which of those two things you believed had been the main cause, removing it hadn't caused an immediate bounce back for Labour. So I think that's something to take away from it, that although these are kind of near-term factors in some sense, they're all symptoms of that broader shift where we've seen fragmentation within the electorate, the rise of I hesitate to call them new issues. I mean, they might have been new issues in 2005, but, but, but they're not really anymore. But different set of issues, you know, less emphasis on economic differences and so on. Yeah. And all those factors led to those three things happening at that particular time.
0: And that's something your one of your co-authors, Rob Ford, and his wife Maria have written a really good book about Brexit land. I've spoken to both of them, in fact, about the book on previous episodes. So I will include links to those in in the show notes. But I think thinking about those longer term trends, I guess this illustrates the real challenge you have with writing a a book that people will be still reading in 50 years time about the general election, but without even the advantage of seeing how all of this parliament plays out. And I'm particularly taken, I think the 2017 volume is a really good example of that problem, isn't it? I mean, it's a good book and it's much better than anything I would have written at the time. I think it's also fair to say that some of it has already aged quite noticeably in that in the aftermath of the Corbyn surge, election defeat, but you know, but but actually a far stronger performance for Labour than anyone, in fact, I think probably including Jeremy Corbyn, (laughs) was expecting in 2017, that some of the factors that volume looks at, such as the rise of left-wing social media, when we now know what happened in 2019, it feels like those weren't really significant changes in the fabric of British politics and they were they were a symptom of Corbyn's rising popularity much more than a cause of it so how did you go about trying to sort of square that circle of both knowing that you've you've got to write the book fairly quickly with all the downsides of that and on the other hand also knowing that people will you know be reading it in many years to come
1: I think the way that that the, all the books do that but the way that we did it in particular is to be very clear that you're looking backwards mm. and not to speculate too much mm. about what might happen in the future in fact not to speculate at all except for you know a few a few paragraphs in the very final chapter so very much bearing in mind that you're writing an account of what had happened not what might come next and all all four of us have written pieces on what might come next elsewhere using what we found in the book and kind of trying to cast it forward a little bit but for the for the book itself it's, it's being very much aware that you're writing an account of what happened and you know your own sort of academics do sometimes speculate and throw things forward but but trying not to do that for that particular volume obviously there may well still be things in it that,
0: that don't age well. Um, and, and are there any bits of the story where you sort of felt, you know, we don't quite yet really understand? Because I think certainly the experience, not just with the, the Nuffield book on 2017, but actually I think talking to you know, people who have written other stuff on it, is, is there is a general sense of, we don't quite really know what happened in 2017 and why. And in a way, now that we have the twenty nineteen result, that helps contextualise twenty seventeen. But yeah, were there any areas where you sort of feel, you know, what really it, it's going to take another few years to, to get clarity?
1: I think the the place where that where I feel that personally, and I can't speak for my co authors who may have, may give very different answers to yeah. this question, um, is a lot of the things that a lot of the analysis of the kind of red wall take and mm. the idea that. The, absolutely agree and and see that this was part of a long-term trend but I'm not sure yet how that's going to play out in the next election and I think there's still room for that to swing backwards which will then put those long-term trends into a different context so you know the stuff that we've been writing about how this has been going on since 20 at least 2010 we might see a shift backwards and that will that will make that the kind of end point of that journey, rather than a continuing journey for that area. Yeah. So I think that's the bit where I feel there's still quite a lot to be seen in terms of what happens in those yeah. areas. Yeah,
0: and and I think that highlights the the point I very briefly mentioned earlier around this quite difficult coalition that is the current Labour Party. You know, if you want to caricature it, you know, grotesquely. But you could say the fact that it's the Labour Party of both Yvette Cooper and Jeremy Corbyn, not just in terms of both of them and their rather different politics, but also each of their constituencies. You know, Yvette Cooper very nearly lost her seat at the 2019 election, although I think her boundary changes are quite favourable. So she's probably got a, a more secure political future than the 2019 result might suggest. But she very nearly was, you know, the sort of one of the headline totemic red wall gains for the Tories, so you've got her seat, and then you've got Jeremy Corbyn's seat, which I live in, which is absolutely, you know, you, you go into a coffee shop here, and you can no longer ask for a coffee with milk, you get cross-questioned as to what sort of milk you want, and so on, It's and it's it's, it's hot or cold, and is it oat, or is it full fat, or is it, you know, it just, so in, you know, for all, for all the caricature and all the fact that there is actually a lot of poverty in Islington as well, Nonetheless, there is a real sense of the Labour Party is trying to square two quite different groups of voters with very different social outlooks. And if they do it, the story will all be about, about what you know wonderful, dominant, electorally successful party they are. Because if you can do that, that's a huge opportunity. If they fail, it's, it's a coalition that can fracture and fragment quite horribly. And so, although I think the story could... Go two of very different ways or somewhere in between obviously the underlying factors as i think particularly rob and maria you know document in brexit land seem fairly fairly set the thing that most intrigues me is that i certainly found reading brexit land thinking i should be really optimistic about the future for well both small l liberalism and capital l liberal democracy in britain because the long-term trends are that we're becoming a more liberal society and if we were having this discussion in 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you could also point to, say, long-term progress for the Liberal Democrats as well. Obviously, the last 11 years have been a slightly different story for the Lib Dems, but it does feel like, whether people call themselves liberals or progressive or centre-left, that although a lot of these trends help serve up electoral success for the Tories in 2019, there's reasons to think they might serve up success for other parties in the future? Or am I just being clutching at straws, wanting to see hope where there isn't any?
1: I think, sorry, excuse me, I think there's two points to that. First of all, you do have to temper some of that optimism with the reality of electoral geography. So whilst it's absolutely the case that electorate have been becoming more liberal, it's absolutely the case that those trends should continue as we get more highly educated generations coming into the electorate, increasingly those groups are clustered in a smaller number of seats, making it more difficult, making it perhaps easier for the Liberal Democrats to win those few seats, but making it more difficult for um, a majority government to be formed around those seats. So there's that element to it.
0: Just before you come on to your second point, (laughs) just on that, I just wonder it's how true that is or at at least in the aftermath of the 2017 election part of the story that was told was essentially the emigration of metropolitan liberals from places like London to places surrounding in the southeast and so on and that was used to help explain some of the you know surprising headline gains for Labour in that election that essentially people in London had had you know, then moved elsewhere and took their values with them and hence were changing the politics. And there were some great graphs and diagrams shared on Twitter showing, you know, the migration of voters through the UK. So is that, was that factor overplayed then? Or is it that there are other more powerful factors that were neglected in the aftermath of 2017? Or
1: I think it was that there were other more powerful factors that were neglected, that the, the story of the 2017 election didn't really notice, what had happened in what became the what became called the Red Wall. Mm. Many of those trends were evident there, but they were less um, yeah. talked about after that election. It all got a little bit lost in the, was there or wasn't there a youthquake? You yeah. Okay, um,
0: so back to your second point.
1: So my second point is that you've talked quite a lot there about the Labour Party coalition mm. of voters, but the 2019 election produced a very strange mix in the Conservative mm. Party as well. Yeah. And whilst the issues around Brexit and those more kind of social cultural issues
0: mm.
1: divide Labour Party voters, economic issues divide the Conservative Party. And it look, I mean, you'd be insane, I think, to try and predict what's going to happen next week, never mind in two or three years time in terms of what the main issues are going to be. But the underlying trends point to economic issues being more important at the next election than perhaps they've been at any election since 2010. And that may provide some challenges for the Conservative Party in terms of holding their coalition together. It's difficult to see how that's going to play out when we're still focused on a pandemic and we're still focused on that kind of close (laughs) crisis management constantly, but the longer term patterns, the promises made about leveling up, the dissatisfaction with local public services, with local crime rates, with local infrastructure, all that points to economic issues moving at least higher up the agenda, if not to the top of the agenda by the time of the next election. And that puts pressure on that Conservative coalition. It puts pressure on them in terms of, you know, how they pay for the pandemic, where that money is going to come from, where they they increase taxes. Although, obviously, The Telegraph would have us believe they're not going to increase taxes. All those issues pull apart that Conservative coalition in quite difficult ways. And the voters that moved between Conservative and Labour at the last election. They don't have a a loyalty to the Conservatives, they obviously don't have loyalty to Labour either anymore, so there isn't anything kind of anchoring them to that party. So I think we could see potentially quite volatile results depending on on where the political agenda is in in two years time.
0: Mm. And is there from you, because this issue about how values drive political choice obviously or area of research or speciality is there any general conclusion about whether economics economic issues versus those social value issues which of those tends to dominate in politics because my gut feel in elections I should say more specifically my gut feel is that economics is usually not always but usually the more important issue and therefore in that sense that Tory coalition looks Uh, brittle is maybe the right word it obviously was extremely strong in some respect in 2019 but if it's based on the most common factor not being the dividing line there's a brittleness there but is is that what the the research actually shows or is it a different picture
1: it's quite a complicated picture and there's two points I would make about it the first is some of the research that I've done on this suggests and it's (coughs) suggestive because You can't infer causality from the kind of data that I have. But it suggests that in the UK, the economic divide has been less important when the parties are perceived as being closer together on economics. Yeah. So during the 97, 2001, 2005 elections, economics... Shrunk in size in terms of, of of what it was doing in predicting voting behavior, but it did grow back a little bit between in 2017, for example, as we saw people perceive the parties as being clearly different on economics. So there's that element to it. Mm. The other thing that I would say though is that I think it's a bit of a a bit of a red herring to try and separate those two things mm. completely. I think it's the way that those those values interact that's really interesting because they produce kind of unique clusters within the electorate that have got distinctive values on these different clusters of issues and they behave in very different ways so for example i've just been doing some work on turnout and values and we can see over the last few elections that those on the left with liberal values have stayed pretty high in terms of their turnout they tend to be a very engaged group of voters whilst those on the left with less liberal values, have seen quite dramatic falls in turnout over the last few elections. But it's the interaction between those two positions. It's not because they're on the left or because they're in less liberal positions. It's because they're combining those two and not finding a party that suits them on either.
0: And I guess that's why we've seen in multiple countries, right wing populists often managing to appeal to voters who are less well off that, that it's not a simple mix of, you know, the, the richer you are, the more a right-wing populist appeals to you. Actually, some of the populist appeal comes from people who are poor and are often motivated by a sense of, well, the system's failed, so an anti-system populist is, is their thing. Part of Donald Trump's appeal, I guess, as well in the US, as well as, you know, populists across Europe.
1: Yeah, although I'd say in the UK, one of the trends that's been missed in that discussion is this trend towards disengagement altogether, that many of those voters are turning, not necessarily turning to to sort of populist radical right options, but are just disengaging altogether from politics, feeling that it doesn't really matter who they vote for, things don't change for them anyway.
0: Yeah, I was quite surprised that when I was finishing off writing uh, my book that's out next year, Polling Unpacked, all about political opinion polls, looking at this turnout issue, that there seems to be a pattern emerging, certainly in Britain and in the US, of a change in the traditional relationship between sort of turnout and political support, that it's basically always been the case nearly everywhere, nearly all the time, that higher turnout tends to benefit parties to the left, lower turnout tends to benefit parties to the right. And that's why Efforts to increase turnout in elections come much more from a centre-left and left-wing perspective than a right-wing perspective. There obviously are people on centre-right and right who you know believe in democracy and, you know, for good public reasons want higher turnout, but the basic political dynamics, with the weird exception of Australia and The the mandatory voting being introduced in Australia because it was seen as something that would help the right actually rather than the left but without error but it does seem more recently in Britain and the US that we might be entering an age where the those disengaged voters for whom sort of right-wing populist appeals resonate are also disproportionately unlikely to vote and therefore in a world where higher turnout may actually benefit which is why I think in part you know the, the the record turnout at the last U.S. presidential election didn't net benefit the Democrats as much as people were expecting such high turnout would do. Have you picked up any of that as sort of being a pattern in British politics as well? Then
1: yes, definitely. I mean, that's that's the the point I was making about the kind of patterns on the left changing. I think one of the things that's happened in British politics that, that you can see in the data is that there's now a really strong class pattern to turn out. I mean, there was always a small class element to it, but it's a really strong pattern now. Um, Amongst the lowest occupation groups, um, not voting is more popular than any particular party. It's, It's the most popular choice, if you like. And at the same time, we've seen the relationship between class and vote weaken. So you can't just assume that if you were able to get everybody to turn out to vote, they would necessarily vote for the party that you expect them to. And I think that's a big change that the left in Britain perhaps haven't entirely grasped yet because I, I still see strategy documents floating around based on mobilizing non voters, yeah. which I don't necessarily think will turn out in the way that that they might think. And I think that's also true of young voters. So I think there's this assumption that if you could turn out all the 18 to 30 year olds, this would massively benefit the left, because we know that those that vote in that age group are very much likely to be Labour voters. But if you look at the the non voters in that age group, there's not much evidence that they're that they're hugely left wing. And in fact, on social issues tend to be much less liberal than those that vote, because it it tends to break along a kind of education line. Um, yep. And it tends to be those without higher education in that younger age group who don't vote.
0: Now, you're, all you're... these
1: strategies that will turn out all the young people and will turn out all the non-voters, I think, are a little misguided.
0: <laughs> Your use of the word liberal there prompts me to remember that most listeners are particularly interested in the Liberal Democrats, so we should really move on to them. In a way, I guess I wish we could just forget what happened to the Lib Dems in the 2019 election, but that would be the wrong reaction, clearly. So I I, I ready myself to wince as you answer this question. What, what went so wrong for the Lib Dems in 2019? What was your take on that? Because I think you particularly did the research on that section of the book, didn't you?
1: I did, yes, and I took a slightly different approach to writing that chapter than had been done in the past in that I tried to weave the stories of the smaller parties together a little Mm -hmm. bit. For the Lib Dems, I think, so I've got a number of points and I'll just go through them. First of all, I think 2019 and the period before it highlighted a tension in the party between the needs of the Lib Dems as a political party and the needs of the Remain campaign as a campaigning group. Mm. And those weren't always necessarily as aligned as would have been ideal for the party in terms of Mm. moving forwards. So I think that tension was a problem, and and I suspect that has now been resolved with Brexit being done. It it makes that kind of tension Mm. much less obvious. But the underlying kind of reshaping of the electorate Remains, And I think, going back to the original point about the three things being Brexit, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, for the Lib Dems, a lot of the emphasis actually ends up with Jeremy Corbyn, which might seem counterintuitive for a party that had such a strong Brexit position. Um, but but there were a lot of Remain voters who were voting Conservative mm. in 2017, and they did so again in 2019. Mm. About 20%, 25% of the Remain vote voted Conservative. And the, and the Lib Dems expected, I think, to pick up quite a lot of that. I expected the Lib Dems to pick up quite a lot of that vote. It wasn't an unreasonable thing to think. But when we dig into the data, we find that those voters were less scared of Brexit than they were of a Jeremy Corbyn-led government. So they were more conservative than they were Remain, and that tended to keep them in place. So in that sense, I think that's a, an optimistic point for the for the Lib Dems because the dynamic there will be very different in, a, in the next election.
0: And um, just on the scale of that, because I think it's quite easy for these numbers to sound quite small, but just thinking about it, the... If you're talking about that sort of proportion of the electorate, had the Lib Dems been successful at tapping into that group, that could have easily raised the Lib Dem vote share, I guess, by four or five percent, given the sorts of figures you're talking about, which would have been an extra third on the Lib Dem vote. So quite significant. But given that would have all come off the Tory vote, that would have taken the Tories from a very healthy share of the vote, to the sort of share of the vote that sometime election winning but sometimes election losing so it's that although that's a it's it's a minority part of the electorate i can it's interesting what you say i can see how that can be a big part of of, of the story and i guess rolling the clock forward just very briefly before coming back to the rest of your list i guess that's part of the story of what happened in chesham and amersham And we're recording before we know the result in North Shropshire, which, given it's a Lee voting seat, may add some complexity to the story. But I think it does at least explain why the Lib Dems have had some really quite good election results up against the Tories in various parts of the country, because it's that, you know, the Corbyn factor hasn't been there. But who knows what will happen come the time of the next election? Triumph, obviously, for the Lib Dems. But back to your list, Paula. back
1: Back to my list. Obviously, a lot was made of an MRP that, that the Lib Dems saw in the summer. And I think the, the message there that I hope everybody learns, not just the Lib Dems, is that MRPs are snapshots too. They're, they're not a magical projection of what's going to happen in the future. They're a snapshot of what would happen on the day the large yep. pull that underpins them was taken and that they need some careful handling and and looking at not just assuming that they are a sort of gospel of what will happen in, in every seat. So I hope that that message will get out a bit more widely. I think they're a fantastic tool but they're but they' but they're not a projection in in the sense of, of doing something different to what an opinion.
0: I was surprised again I was digging into MRP methodology and what its strengths and weaknesses are for you know the, the writing that i've been doing i was surprised actually how little has been written at a non-technical level about this is how you can understand an mrp poll what it does tell you what it doesn't tell you it feels like we're still at quite early stages both in politics and perhaps also in you know polling and social science research of really understanding you know it what you can and can't do with the methodology aren't we
1: Yeah, I think so. And um, there was this kind of mystical belief in it that built up after 2017 and after after getting some good results. But like all statistical models, it's only as good as the data that goes into it. And so I think we need to have a little bit more caution
0: around. it's, It's often forgotten that there were two MRP models in 2017. There was the YouGov one for the Times and there was Lord Ashcroft's. One was right and one was wrong. And it's. It's a huge lucky break for the MRP as a methodology that it was the high profile one that was right. And the other if it had been the other way around, if Lord Ashcroft's one had been the high profile one, you know, it would it would have nothing like the reputation as a methodology that it does now. And that's just pure, pure luck, nothing to do with actually the inherent strengths or weaknesses.
1: And also the MRP can be right at the headline level, Mm. but still get individual constituencies Mm. wrong, which, if you're planning a strategy for target seats, is quite important. (laughs) So I think uh, we do need to just treat it with a a degree of caution.
0: And uh, if I will get in my preemptive explanation that I will doubtless use several times in the next few years about why you shouldn't believe MRP seat figures in Scotland, which is that, you know, just a really good practical example of that is, you know, a third of the Lib Dem parliamentary parties from Scotland. So what happens in Scottish constituencies is very important if you're wanting to think about what will happen to the Lib Dems as a party. But that's only four seats. There are one or two other seats that the party has, you know, some decent hopes in. But even if you are relatively generous in terms of saying six or seven seats in Scotland, that's really at the level of number of seats where the the resolution of nearly every MRP model isn't sufficient to pick out. Is something really different happening in, say, Lib Dem held seats in Scotland from elsewhere in Scotland? And indeed, the answer in the Scottish Parliament elections was yes. But we won't, you know, MRP will apparently give us an answer, but it will probably be a misleading answer uh, you know, many times over the next few years to that question. Uh, and obviously, we will click kind of constituency and reuse polling that repeatedly when future MRP polls get published, <laughs> but uh
1: and obviously we saw a certain amount of constituency polling happening as well in 2019, um, that seemed to have a degree of success. So um...
0: yeah, constituency polls have a little bit of I think constituency polls are almost the mirror image of MRP. The MRP has a better reputation than in a way, in a sense is justified, <laughs> that people focus on, oh, MRP was the one that got it right. If it's got the words MRP in, it must be true. There's a little bit of undue adulation there. And conversely, if it's a constituency poll, people often react in the exact opposite. Oh, constituency polls are all quite unreliable way. But actually, their track record is pretty good. I was really surprised, actually, when before the Hartlepool election... I looked back at previous parliamentary by-election opinion polls of even even though voting intention often moves quite swiftly in the last few days of a by-election campaign. Um, and I can say that having worked on quite a few and therefore often seen a lot of inside you know data on this is if and, and although constituency by-election polls often have their fieldwork ending quite a few days before polling day, Nonetheless, if you just basically judge by-election polls by did they have the right party in first place, they've got a pretty good track record, you know, and and I think much better than most people expect. I think if a constituency, parliamentary constituency, by-election poll shows party A ahead, the default should be, well, is there a reason why we shouldn't believe that, as opposed to, oh, it's it's a by-election poll it's a constituency poll you know ignore it
1: yeah i mean i think some of the some of the skepticism perhaps comes from the fact that they are often funded by particular groups Mm. and and so sometimes there's a a certain degree of skepticism as the as the of them as internal Mm. polling rather than public polling but they seem to have a pretty good track record
0: And, and what doesn't help which is very relevant at the moment in terms of some media coverage is i think the media sometimes confuse canvas data and other internal party data with polling and therefore report something that's based on one set of data as if it's a poll when actually it's not a poll and it's wrong to to evaluate it in the context of of it being a poll and i i I just find that baffling why political journalists who you know good knowledgeable smart people seem to confuse canvas data and opinion polls to me they are so obviously such different sources of information but be that as it may anyway back to my final point about
1: the Lib Dems which I yeah. think is a bit more optimistic mm. in the the Lib Dems will be starting from a much stronger place in 2019 than they started from in 2017 mm. so in 2017 obviously there were a number of MRPs kicking around by the end on various tactical voting sites and and so on. And there were a number of seats where there were some fairly bitter arguments over who was best placed to to beat a Conservative candidate in some of those seats. That is much clearer. There's a lot of very strong second places. It's it's much, much clearer going into 20, whatever it will be, 23, 24. Somebody hinted at 22 the other day, which I think added to my grey hairs. There will also be a different dynamic with Labour going into the next election, which we've already talked about a little bit how that made it much harder for the Liberal Democrats to to bring over those kind of affluent remainers, as as I sometimes call them. Um, So I think in that sense, there is a little bit of reason for optimism because starting from a stronger position, a clearer position, And perhaps able to bring over some of those remain conservatives who are now not put off by the option, not put off by the revoke policy, which will have put off one or two, but particularly not worried that by voting Liberal Democrat, they might be putting um, Jeremy Corbyn into number 10.
0: And in fact, the last episode, I spoke with Alan Wager, who is one of the team with Tim Bale and others who has done some relatively recent analysis they published a pamphlet earlier this year and it's very striking in that how much clearer it is who is the main challenger to the conservatives in most in in most of the key seats it's not you know there will be arguments in some seats but overall the landscape is much much clearer and but as i spoke with alan about that on the last episode maybe if instead just pick up on your brief reference of revoke there because i think there is Genuine question mark still as to what the right conclusion is to draw over the impact of the Lib Dem revoke policy in the twenty nineteen election. And to put it very simply, the sort of the the mainstream media story, backed up very much by the experience of lots of Lib Dems when out canvassing and talking to voters on the doorstep, is very straightforwardly the revoke policy went down really badly. It was a mistake. <clears throat> there is, however. Also, the view of people like John Curtis, who say that, look, if you look at the party's opinion poll ratings and you say graph those and you look then at when the party did things like announce its revoke policy, the two things just don't match up. If you didn't know when the party announced its revoke policy, you wouldn't pick the right moment on that vote share decline graph to say, "Oh, we must, you know, is that the policy was announced at one point. The party's poll ratings, if anything, went up a bit soon after it was announced, the decline happened much. Like, you know, the the chronology just doesn't work once you get into the detail. So, what was your conclusion in the end about to what extent the revoke policy went wrong?
1: So, with the greatest of respect to Sir John Curtis, I'm not sure that you can just match them in that simplistic way.
0: Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, to be fair, his, his analysis is a bit more sophisticated yeah. than my summary, but but yeah.
1: But it, it's, as you say, when you're starting to get into a campaign, mm. that's when a revoke policy becomes much more front and centre. And some of, some of the research from the book suggested that campaign staff within the Lib Dems, perhaps if they'd had longer to work with that policy and present it and think about the, the way it might be attacked, they might have been able to do a better but better more effective things with it I'm not saying they could do a better job but I don't think they did a bad job but I think part of it was the fact that the the policy was put in place at conference and the election came you know so quickly afterwards that there wasn't the time there to to get the messaging quite right on that policy Mm. so it quickly became easy for other parties to present it as undemocratic when actually it wouldn't have been because it would only have been in the case of a Lib Dem majority, which would have been through a vote. So there were lots of nuanced positions to take and no time to develop them.
0: Yeah, I, I think also, and I say this largely with the advantage of hindsight, I certainly didn't think all of these things through at the time, is I think there was a there's a traditional cultural weakness in the Lib Dem approach to polling that the party relies too much on say, testing a policy position through one or two quantitative questions, when in practice, you know, the real problem with getting a a question in a poll about a policy position, you know, to make it useful, is the natural instinct is to say the question should be worded neutrally, so it doesn't leave them. But in reality, policy issues don't get described neutrally. They get described by partisans on different sides and friendly and unfriendly media outlets, giving their different take on it. And the actual outcome of how a policy issue fares is the exchange of partisan takes. It's not the public's reaction to a neutral take. You know, the Tories made this mistake with the dementia tax in 2017, You know, as Phil Cowley wrote about in the previous volume. The Tories did market research it. When presented in a neutral way, the policy came out fine. And then it very much didn't in the crucible of politics. And I think revoke was one of those things that was sort of tested as it were in a theoretical abstract way as opposed to how's this really going to work and the thing that I really sticks in my mind now about a collective interpretation lots of people got wrong was you know the Lib Dem research pointing towards well if we use this particular wording that works well with the public so that's the wording we must use and this is the wording we mustn't use when the correct follow-up response would be and I hope I remember this in future you know in you know involved closely in a general election campaign is well if it's so dependent on the detail of the wording and you're the Lib Dems that's just toast because maybe if you're Labour or the Tories so a big party with friendly media outlets behind you you can set the terms of the wording but if you're a smaller party it's almost impossible to do that and so if 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 the result of the research is to tell you you have to word it a particular way you probably need to find something else to talk about that at least is the lesson i've drawn from
1: 2019 yeah but just to add into that i do think that the, the broad thrust of of the point is right that i don't i i do i think the the danger of a lib dem vote leading to a labor government was a bigger factor yeah than than the lib dem's revoke policy
0: and in fact that is explains the whole Joe Swinson for Prime Minister messaging is that sense of oh if I vote Lib Dem I'm really going to get horrible person x as Prime Minister that's been a perennial burden for Lib Dem and Alliance and Liberal Party election campaigns all the way back to well the 1930s and the rise of maybe even the 1920s and the rise of, of the Labour Party and so the attempted solution to that this time clearly was one that didn't work but I think that is one where I think a little bit more sympathy is actually appropriate as to why that mistake was made because it was trying to deal with a perennial problem. The big hope I think for the Lib Dems at the next election is that I think amongst Lib Dem activists and members and voters crucially all three groups are aligned in being reasonably relaxed about the idea of Keir Starmer being the next Prime Minister very very different world from the one of Jeremy Corbyn leading the Labour Party and in some cases that may be relaxed and unenthused in other cases relaxed and enthused but the point is you know if if I say on a Lib Dem Zoom call to a group of Lib Dems you know I guess you know if there's a hung parliament after the next election we might well end up supporting Keir Starmer to be Prime Minister it doesn't get anything like the sort of reaction it would have had if I'd said that two years ago with Jeremy Corbyn in the sentence so yeah,
1: we did some in, in the book, we did some modelling of what pushed voters from Labour into different groups. So we looked at Labour to remain parties and the, there's lots of demographics. There's lots of other stuff in the model. But the two big factors were liking Joe Swinson was a was a positive yeah. pull factor. But disliking Jeremy Corbyn was a, a much was it was a stronger, I'm not saying much stronger, but it was definitely stronger. Yeah. Than than liking Joe Swinson. So I think that's again a dynamic that will be completely different for the next election.
0: And one other thing that happened in 2019 that we've not mentioned so far was the Unite to Remain arrangement. So a set of formal seat deals where different parties stood down for each other. It didn't include the Labour Party, both understandable, but also perhaps a major weakness in that attempt. And I think the thinking of a lot of people was that even if formal seat deals have not got a great history in British politics in general, uh, you know, in terms of the number of problems that get caused trying to negotiate them for for a start, that nonetheless, perhaps Brexit was the exception where it might work. And I think if you look at the results subsequently, I know Peter Dunphy, for example, who was very involved in Unite to Remain argues a good cause. He was in my Twitter timeline the other day arguing about po- the positive impact of Unite Ni- to Remain. But I, I think on balance, I would take a different view from Peter that it's hard to see that it had much of a positive benefit. And there was a very big opportunity cost in terms of all the time and attention of senior people it took up that could have been spent on other things. But what was your, in that sort of debate between Peter and myself, what was your take on how Unite to Remain fared? There's
1: not much evidence... That it that it made any real difference to to in any of the seats, partly because it because Labour weren't involved, and I mean, I think we could do a whole other episode on whether or not that's a good or a bad idea, a good or a bad idea in the future. But it just didn't have the the, the raw power in terms of numbers to to deliver anything. And so in that sense, didn't have a huge impact. I do think there's a danger with, I mean, you you talked about it there a little bit, but I do think there's a danger in some of these packs. the kind of idea that voters don't like being told what to do. But also, if we go back through the history of kind of understanding how voters vote and what they vote for, a lot of voters vote for expressive reasons. Mm. It's like turning up to support your team in the rain on a saturday and so if you take that option away and say well actually we're standing down you can't vote and express that positive affinity with us it doesn't mean that voters are necessarily going to jump across to another party to do that so i think there's a lot of a lot of danger in formal pacts like that in terms of of putting putting voters off and just assuming that you can your Excel sheet and move all those voters into another yeah. column, I think is quite dangerous. There's
0: a lovely phrase a Green Party activist used on Twitter about how voters aren't Lego bricks that you can reassemble <laughs> as you wish. But I also think that This opportunity cost issue is really underappreciated. And it's something I've particularly been thinking about since the 2019 election, that, for example, in the run-up to the 2019 election, because I was running to be Lib Dem president, I spent quite a lot of time crisscrossing the country going to Lib Dem events. And, you know, I crossed paths with senior people in the Lib Dems who were similarly crisscrossing the country to spend time trying to get local parties or other parts of the party on board for agreeing Unite to Remain deals. And that was all time and effort that was go- that they were spending going into that, not spending going into other things about election planning and preparation, or indeed since the 2019 election. I mean, I think Best for Britain, for example, have done some really interesting polling, which I think definitely helps understand the landscape in terms of scope for anti-conservative cross-party cooperation, I think they slightly oversell the conclusion sometimes, but definitely the research is, is, is very useful. But that's all research that they're doing on how does a Labour candidate get Lib Dems or Greens to vote for them or a Lib Dem candidate get Labour or Green vote. It's not research into how does Labour or the Lib Dems get soft Tories to switch. And of course, if, if somebody switches from Tory to Lib Dem in the Tory-Lib Dem marginal, that counts double because it's one off the Tory vote and one on the Lib Dem vote, while someone switching from Labour to the Lib Dems is just one on the Lib Dem vote and it leaves the Tory vote, you know, total untaxed. So I think there's quite an opportunity cost that almost becomes a slight comfort zone of it's, it's, it's almost easier i think for some people to talk about how do you rearrange the lego bricks as opposed to the okay buckle up get your gut feelings under control remember that people who vote tory could be reasonable people you might try to appeal to and in a way do the difficult job of thinking about how to win over soft tories
1: make the lego brick pile bigger yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap up what i asked the followers on twitter for any questions for you and i picked out one from mary I thought particularly be interesting to hear your take on because I thought I want to know the answer to this and I've no idea what your answer will be. So Mary asked, what is the extent, do you think, to which local activists can buck the national trend in a seat with their own efforts? Yeah, what's the balance between national trend and local activity in determining who wins constituencies?
1: So, First of all, this is a bit of a gap in the book and it's something we wanted to do. We wanted to go and do case studies in mm. local constituencies, but we were in a lockdown <laughs> while we were writing, yeah. it, so, so it wasn't something that we could we could actually do in the end. And I do think there's a, a little bit of a gap there around the impact of local campaigning. Mm. My So this is based as much on my instinct mm. as it is on data, <laughs> if I can put that up front. And I think that local campaigning does make a difference for mm. sure, but I think it's much more difficult to make that difference in the heat of a national election campaign. So in some senses, it's the work done before you get to campaign day, and it's the profile before you get to not campaign day, but you know, the, the kind of six week campaign that makes the difference. Not once you get into the heat of the campaign, people are getting most of their news coverage, it's national coverage, they're seeing leaders debates, they're seeing things that are not connecting with local areas. So I think, Again, this is, this is instinct, not based on data, and I'm not an expert on local yeah. campaigns. But my, my instinct says it's the work that you do before you get to an election that makes a difference, yeah. rather than being able to swim against a national campaign once it's started.
0: Yeah, I think that would very much be my sort of view as well. I think particularly if, well, if you take my own example, if you look at the 2001 and 2005 general elections at the top Lib Dem results in each You'll see in the top six, both times, there's a campaign that I was the campaign manager for. And in fact, I think we're the only seat to have ever got in the top six list, two elections in a row without the help of a parliamentary by-election. So (laughs) genuinely still very proud of what myself and everyone else, Lynn the candidate, Neil, the agent and the rest of the team achieved. But you're right. I mean, the way I sometimes jokingly refer to it is the way we then ended up with Lynn winning in 2005 was I had spent the previous nine years picking up the phone to Lynn every day, telling her to do something more. And it was definitely not only the 2001 and 2005 elections and in retrospect it's perhaps amazing that we are still really good friends (laughs) to each other but because it's only (laughs) a slight exaggeration to say that was basically you know I spent nine years thinking what more can we do how do we win more votes you know every day and it's it's that long term which of course in the 2019 election there were lots of seats that looked like good Lib Dem prospects but there hadn't been the time to actually build them up properly one, one reason perhaps, you know, that might be an upside of a longer rather than shorter parliament this time, even though there's a temptation always to want an election as soon as possible to try to get the government out as soon as... So penultimate question, what was the most surprising or fun thing you learned working on the book?
1: So I think the most surprising, this is the one I've answered every time people have asked me the most surprising, is that we found, looking at the data, that Boris Johnson was actually less popular um, during the 2019 campaign than Theresa May had been during the 2017 campaign, oh, on average, and of course, <laughs> so although that's really interesting, <laughs> Boris Johnson was able to reach out to voters that Theresa May just didn't have. Yeah. the That kind of iconic leave status, I think, really helped. In that, but yeah, on average, in fact, I I I think this is right. On the last day of the campaign, Boris Johnson, on average, was slightly below Jeremy Corbyn's twenty seventeen kind of likability rating. So he wasn't a uniquely popular leader, as we often get told, but he was popular with groups that really mattered. Yeah, um, that's that's the. Perhaps the most surprising.
0: Yeah, you even depending on your your politics, that may or may not count as a fun fact. (laughs) May (laughs) or may not count as a fun fact. fact. I
1: don't know if this is a fun fact either. But the chapter that looks at kind of MPs and their previous occupation Mm. also reveals that this is the first Parliament not to have an ex minor on the Labour benches. So I guess that's also a oh, that's interestingly social change.
0: Well, given also all the focus at COP26 on the future of coal, that is interestingly symbolic timing, isn't it? So finally, then, if enthused or maybe enraged or puzzled (laughs) by what we've discussed so far, if any listeners want to read about the 2019 election, obviously they should go get your book. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. But if there was a second book that you would stretch to them recommending after they've read your book, is there anything that particularly stands out for you? So there's a
1: there's there's a number of books that are kind of edited collections of the election, written by academics. But I can list them quickly. There's political communication in Britain, which I think is out either today or yet it's this week anyway. Yeah,
0: so that's um, sort of mid December. It's out yeah, for future listeners. It will be, be out by.
1: There's one called Breaking the Deadlock and there's one called Britain Votes. Mm -hmm. They're all written by academics. They're all kind of edited collections. Mm -hmm. Then there are two obvious ones on the red wall. There's Deb Mattison and Seb Payne's books on the red wall. But the one I would actually recommend if you really want to understand 2019 is the one we've already talked about, and that's Brexitland by Rob Ford and Maria Soboeska, which gets at those long-term trends, which I think are far more important for understanding 2019 than anything any one political actor did during the campaign.
0: Yeah. So that would I be think... my top recommendation. <laughs> um, I've not read all of them yet myself, <laughs> but I would particularly echo the recommendation, obviously, for Brexit Brexitland. I think it's an absolutely fascinating study. I also found Deborah Matinson's book particularly interesting because, as with her previous book, it relies really heavily on what voters have said in focus groups. And I think that just gives a very different picture of politics. It's, it's perhaps the most important insight, because in the end, it's voters who determine what happens. But it's an insight that's so often missing. And I was really struck by... It, for example, gave me the best, I think, understanding of why in places like, say, Sunderland, at the local council level, the local Lib Dems have managed to make huge progress... And at the parliamentary level, it's all about or has been tradition, you know, in the last couple of rounds, all about the Tories and Labour. And, you know, just what is the consistent perspective from the voters eyes that makes politics seem so bifurcated in some parts of northern England where there's, you know, whether you look at Sunderland or places like Barnsley and Rotherham and Wakefield, there are lots of signs of Lib Dem progress against Labour at the council level. Even though if you're looking at it from a Westminster perspective, it seems to be Red Wall, Brexit, Tory versus Tory versus Labour. And obviously the question about at what point can the Lib Dems therefore break through to maybe be challenges of the parliamentary. All those sorts of questions I found, although Deborah's book barely, if at all, mentions the Lib Dems, actually I found really interesting from a Lib Dem perspective as well. So I very much, very much recommend that. The fact that she's now the director of strategy, I think, is a job title for Keir Starmer also makes it an interesting insight into what advice she is probably giving him so thank you so much for your time paula as ever that has been absolutely fascinating i know our paths have crossed a few times where we've spoken at the same event in person i hope it's not too long before we get a chance to do that again but in the meantime uh, listeners can find paula on twitter at p underscore surage which is s-u-r-r-i-d-g-e myself at mark pack and this podcast at bar chart podcast look out in the show notes to follow up links to what we've discussed especially uh, some of the books that we've mentioned and those previous podcast episodes and if you like listening please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favorite podcast app thank you so much paula and thank you everyone for listening